0: hello it's andrew harrison here we've got an exciting new podcast to join the bunker oh god what now and doomsday watch it's called jam tomorrow it's about the promises of the post-war world how they were betrayed and how we can get them back the first episode is out right now and here's a taster you can get the full thing wherever you get your podcasts just search jam tomorrow now here's a bit of episode one every day is like d-day
1: In 1945, Britain was broke and exhausted, but the country had big hopes for the future, for a free national health service for everyone, for new housing and better schools. What were the hopes and ideals we had then, and what became of them? I'm Ros Taylor, and this is the story of how we were promised Jam Tomorrow.
2: What on earth do we make of the Germans? How on earth do we fit them into our worldview given all the terrible things we discovered they'd done?
0: If Stoicism wasn't seen as a dominant response to things like air raids, then morale could really, really quickly break down.
2: The scale of the British attacks were way beyond anything that the Germans had felt able to mount in 1940-41. The pro leave camp were very into the idea of Britain alone. We can do it alone again.
1: About a decade ago, I met an elderly veteran on Victoria Station who was selling poppies. I asked him where he'd fought. It was D-Day, when the Allies invaded Normandy. It was nothing like they tell you, he said. I often think about that man. Here are some of the things we think we know about World War II. Keep calm and carry on was the slogan that got us through the Blitz. That in 1941, Britain stood alone. And that the largest single loss of civilian life during the war happened when the Germans dropped a bomb on Bethnal Green tube station. But none of these things is quite true. In this first episode of Jam Tomorrow, I'll be looking at how we remember the Second World War, how much we think we remember, and how it still shapes the way we live and think in the 21st century. We'll see how the campaign to leave the EU drew on those myths we've nurtured to make Brexit not a boring technical matter of how to leave a trading bloc, but a liberation from German-led oppression. I'll be delving into the home intelligence reports at the government commission to find out what people were really thinking, talking to historians about some of the iconic symbols of World War II that sometimes turn out to have more to do with aspiration than reality. We'll hear how British air commanders learnt lessons from the Blitz and used them to destroy German cities at the end of the war, how a tragedy at an air raid shelter was hushed up and even blamed on Jews, the abandoned plan to ship hundreds of thousands of children abroad to Britain's former colonies, why Nazism became a staple of British comedy and boys' comics, and what the Germans really thought of us after the war. What will it take for us to see the Second World War clearly? Do we need to move on? When it comes to the war, are we the ones who are deceiving ourselves? These are uncomfortable questions They go to the heart of who we think we are.
2: You know, if you're going to have a foundation myth, it might as well be the one where you destroy Nazism.
1: Only a handful of people in Britain still remember fighting in the Second World War. More remember living through it as children. But in a decade or so, the war will have almost passed from memory, just as the First World War already has. It's passing into history, and soon everything we think we know about it will be second hand.
3: Let us, therefore, brace ourselves to our duties. And so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour.
2: Memory is essentially a a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor for how societies use a sense of the past to shape narratives in the present. Essentially how they put a sense of the past to use, in effect. But memories are also personal. So memories can be personal, but they can also be collective. Kasia Tomashevich is a historian of the Second World War
1: who has worked with
2: the Imperial War Museum. Memories are constructed at a time, but then they are also framed after the fact. And I think the second model is really interesting in this regard because you certainly see it now that it's put to use in a whole host of kind of different political ways. So certainly around the Brexit referendum, the pro-leave camp, I would say particularly a right-wing strand within the pro-leave camp. were very into the idea of Britain alone. We can do it alone again. So how can we find out what
1: people were really thinking at the time? While I was researching this series, I came across a trove of extraordinary wartime documents that the Institute of English Studies at the University of London have posted online. They were compiled by the Ministry of Information and called the Home Intelligence Reports. The Ministry had several sources of information, including censors reading letters posted abroad, and local committees, but a lot came from between 200 and 400 people in each region who would pass on information to an intelligence officer. The idea was to find out what people were really thinking about the war and the way the government was handling it. What were they complaining about? Did they think Britain would win the war? And as it dragged on, what kind of society did they want to live in when it was over? Among the more clear-cut
3: comments from the postal censorship a forecast that the younger generation will play a big part in altering things for the better, that the old-school tie will be burnt at the stake and that there will be a return to the land.
1: The reports reflect human life in all its messy, resentful, dogged complexity. Disgust at the behaviour of evacuees and women sleeping with US soldiers. More anti-Semitism than people would like you to remember. A desire to punish Germany for bombing raids. But the government wasn't just monitoring what people were thinking about those raids, or food shortages, or girls hanging around air bases.
3: Keen interest continues, and there is a great demand for a prefabricated house to be erected in other parts of the country, as well as in London, even to the extent of wanting one set up in every provincial town to show people what they are like.
1: Just as people spent time locked down during Covid making plans for what we'd do when we could go out again, people talked a lot about what life could be like after the war. And what they heard was a big ask especially for a conservative government. Some people believe there'd be an end to class distinctions, a workers' revolution inspired by what had happened in Russia.
3: There seems to be a desire, largely unexpressed, for greater social security after the war. And it is stated that the success of Russia has tended to prepare the public mind for alterations in the present order of society.
1: Professor Lucy Noakes is a historian of modern warfare at the University of Essex.
0: You needed people to to kind of sympathise with and feel solidarity with, with the Soviet Union. But at the same time, you didn't want that to slip over into a kind of an admiration for the political system or for the social system that they had
1: there. They wanted an end to shortages, queuing and half a pound of butter a week. People who'd been bombed out needed new houses.
3: Discussion about what is going to happen after the war is increasing. The majority, when they speak of it, are afraid things will be just as bad afterwards. Inequalities of sacrifice and reward apparent in our own system are also said to increase this leaning towards socialism. The following factors are suggested as causes of this tendency. A levelling up of classes resulting from bombing and rationing. The Russian successes. The blaming of vested interests for the ills of production. The fear that conditions of the last post-war period may be repeated.
1: And the reward for winning the war was the beverage report and all the improvements it promised, and especially a national health service. That prize would help people hold the line when things got tough, but it was also a way of tackling the pockets of admiration for Russian communism that the Ministry of Information could see popping up around the country.
0: It was incredibly popular. It's really hard to imagine now a government report, a white paper, selling out. But it went through, I I can't remember, something like 15 or 16 different editions because it sold out so
1: quickly. People wanted to read it and wanted to see what was being being suggested. Still, a lot of people thought that the things in the report would never materialise. The
3: public as a whole wants the government to implement the beverage report. The detailed contents of the report, even the simpler financial details, are not generally known. The report is seen as offering security against unemployment, ill health and old age. But even more, it seems the touchstone of the government's intentions for the post-war world. It is widely, if not generally, believed that the report has been shelved, or that the public will, in due course, be offered a watered-down version.
1: You can see augurs of many of the things that have preoccupied us as a nation ever since in the war. Class, the NHS, property our growing indifference to the Church of England, our love of shopping and consumer choice. For almost a year after the beginning of the war in 1939, things were quiet on the home front. People talked about a phony war, but that all changed in 1940 when German bombers started to target British cities. In the autumn of 1940, bombers hit London every night, and the bombing continued on and off for the rest of the war. But while there had been dire predictions of people fleeing London and suffering lasting psychological trauma, a kind of stoicism began to prevail. Raids continue to be faced bravely. They are the main subjects of comment both in the postal
3: intercepts and in bookstall conversations. The degree of nervous shock among those rendered homeless is extremely small. Many overcome the blow, apparently, by telling exciting tales of what happened and of their escape. Those who are depressed are so largely because of loved ones killed or injured. Often Union Jacks, pictures of the King and Queen, Heather and Horseshoes are put up on damaged property.
1: That, at least, is the story we often tell ourselves about the Blitz, of fortitude and bravery in the face of personal catastrophe. But the reality was sometimes more complicated – and as what happened at Bethnal Green shows, the authorities were well aware of the potential for morale to crack. Lucy Noakes explains what happened.
0: There were always attempts to manage how we give voice to emotions in public, because, you know, it can be kind of contagious if one person in an air raid filter starts kind of screaming and crying. Other people might then start to, you know, kind of give voice to that as well. And that's certainly what they were worried about. During the Second World War, was that if Stoicism wasn't seen as a dominant response to things like air raids, then kind of morale could really, really quickly break down. And morale's really central to war. It's particularly central to wars where air war is involved and where you know civilians are at the kind of the heart and one of the main targets of war. One
1: hundred and seventy-three people died in the Bethnal Green Tube disaster in nineteen forty-three, but they weren't killed by a German bomb. What happened was one night later
0: on in the war, after the main period of the Blitz, the air rage siren went off and As it went off, a couple of buses full of people were passing what was going to be a new tube station in Bethnal Green. and was a temporary air raid shelter. At the same time as the buses stopped to let people get off to go down into the air raid shelter, a cinema just over the road came out and the people from the cinema started to go down the stairs as well. Other people passing, coming out of pubs, passing on the street, came down. And what's supposed to have happened, apparently happened, is that people were, were surprised or frightened by really loud explosions, which turned out not to be bombs but to be new anti-aircraft batteries in Victoria Park nearby just up the road and the long and the short of it is that somebody slipped on the stairs because they were dark and slippery and ill-lit and they were full of people and I think 173 people died in a crush. Now it's awful and it also doesn't fit our kind of stories of the blitz of kind of stoicism and you know standing up to it and singing our way through yeah, seeing our way through air raids. And there was a real attempt by the government not to completely suppress any kind of talk about this or kind of mention of it, but people were asked not to talk about it. They weren't told they couldn't, but they were. it was kind of suggested in all kinds of places, in schools, in local neighbourhoods, in the hospital where the, the dead and the wounded were taken. People were asked kind of, you know, probably best if you don't really mention this And the inquest was put off and it it was conducted, but it was conducted in private because they were worried it had been driven by panic. And the kind of results of the inquest weren't made public until after the end of the Second World War, because they were worried that if the newspapers picked up on this and made a big story out of it, it could kind of fatally undermine the idea of this kind of stoical people standing up heroically to air raids.
1: But the recommendation to stay Sturm backfired, and some people started rumours that Jews were somehow to blame.
0: That was a little taster of Jam Tomorrow with our own brilliant Ros Taylor. If you want to hear the full episode, it's out right now on your favourite podcast app. Just search Jam Tomorrow. There are new episodes coming every Monday, so why not subscribe? Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the podcasts.